Hello, I'm Ryan Tate, and welcome to History of the Pacific Northwest, Episode 14, Voyage of the Columbia, Part 5. Welcome back. I hope you all had a wonderful Christmas, a happy holiday, and or a happy new year. We are now up to five episodes on the adventures of the ship Columbia and its fur trading ventures in the Pacific Northwest. First, it was captained by John Kendrick, who, in a peculiar move, swapped ships with Captain Robert Gray, who took the Columbia around the world and back to Boston. When last we left off, Robert Gray had returned to Boston to a hero's welcome. He was the toast of the town, and many Americans celebrated him for being the first American around the world. In spite of being celebrated by the people and welcomed by Governor John Hancock at the Capitol, Gray's financial backer, Joseph Burrell, was not thrilled with the results of the voyage. Burrell's initial $49,900 investment had returned $304, a substantial loss of wealth. That would be the equivalent of someone today investing $1.6 million and receiving only $10,000 in return. However, Burrell decided to double down on Gray and finance another fur trading venture. Burrell believed that Gray had gained valuable experience and knowledge while bargaining with the Native Americans of the Northwest Coast, and that would help him if he were to go on a second venture. On October 1st, 1790, the Columbia set sail yet again. The mission was much the same, but with a few additional goals thrown in. Gray would go to Vancouver Island, construct a sloop, and purchase as many furs as possible and sell them off in China. Though Burrell chose Gray as the captain, he did not trust him. Burrell suspected that Robert Gray may have smuggled some furs and skimmed some profits for himself. To prevent this, he sent one of his clerks, John Hoskins, to keep an eye on Gray. Between Robert Haswell, John Hoskins, and Columbia's fifth mate, John Boyd, we have a fairly detailed account of Columbia's second voyage. John Boyt is a new character, but unfortunately we know little about him. Boyt was born in Boston on October 15, 1774, very young to be an officer. The Columbia set sail just before his 16th birthday. It is quite possible he lied about his age, as most young sailors and soldiers did at the time. Gray took the same path to Vancouver Island that he did with Captain Kendrick. They sailed to the Cape Verde Islands and then proceeded south to the Falkland Islands. They had fair luck on the rounding of Cape Horn, though the seas were still rough. After making their way around the southern tip of South America, on April 23rd, Gray's faithful companion, Nancy the Goat, died. She was buried at sea, and many of the crew who were familiar with the old goat expressed their sadness at the loss of their beloved mascot. By mid-May, the Columbia reached Clackwat Sound. I had mispronounced it Clayaquat Sound on a past episode, and I apologize for that. Gray made it to Clackwat four months faster than Kendrick had done on their first voyage. This seemed to be something that Gray took pride in was his speed. Gray did everything fast. He was determined to move as quickly as possible and rarely lingered anywhere. His impatience and reckless sailing was something that put many on edge as they feared it would cost them dearly. In the last voyage, Gray had gotten the sloop Lady Washington hung up on a rocky shoal. 
The ship was battered by the rocks and easily could have been lost or destroyed. In spite of that, Gray continued to sail in the same dangerous way. Before they had barely made it out of Boston Harbor, John Hoskins and Robert Gray had developed a mutual dislike of one another. Hoskins consistently wrote scathing remarks about the captain in his journal. If we had more sources directly from Gray, it is likely we would see that the feeling was mutual. The Columbia's crew stopped at Clackwatt Sound for a time to rest. Quite a few crew members were suffering from scurvy, and they still believed that time ashore would cure the ailment. Gray was greeted once again by Chief Wickenish. However, the chief showed little interest in trading this time. He acted as if Gray's cargo were gifts for him rather than trade goods. Perhaps the chief expected tribute for allowing the men to use his shores as a camp. In any case, Gray did receive some important information regarding Nootka Sound. The British and Spanish were at high tensions with one another. This time period we know as the Nootka Sound controversy, which was covered in a past episode. Gray learned that Jose Esteban Martinez had been recalled and his fortifications at Nootka Sound dismantled. However, the new Spanish Viceroy reversed that decision and appointed Lieutenant Don Francisco Eliza as the new Commandant of Nootka Sound. Gray had gotten away with quite a bit when Martinez was in charge, but this new Spaniard was a wild card. So Gray decided he would stay away from Nootka Sound and make Clackquat Sound his headquarters for the time being. The natives of Clackquat Sound were showing signs of smallpox after extended contact with Euro-American peoples. Smallpox was an issue with the indigenous people of Vancouver Island, but it was not as destructive as some other communities. Before departing Clackquat Sound to trade, the Hawaiian Atu deserted the Columbia. Gray suspected that Wiccanish's people were hiding the young man. In response, Gray took Wiccanish's older brother, Tutiscosetl, as a hostage. At this, Atu was handed over to Gray, where he was flogged for deserting the Columbia. Gray demonstrated a rashness here that was becoming more characteristic of the captain. His, at times, heavy-handed treatment of the indigenous people of the North Pacific would be detrimental to the whole expedition. After releasing Tutiscosetl back to his people and continuing on the trading route, Robert Gray ran into his former first mate Joseph Ingraham. Ingraham was under the employment of someone else now and was captain of a ship named Hope. Ingraham had returned Opie to Hawaii, who you may recall joined Atu on the Columbia. Ingraham had been very successful this fur trading season, mostly because he had elected to stay in locations for long periods of time. Ingraham found that the indigenous people of Vancouver Island were not in any hurry to trade like the Europeans. After all, they were at home, and typically they were well off. Gray, on the other hand, was too impatient to stay in one place for too long. Gray proceeded to southeastern Alaska to get started on his trading. While there, he sent his second mate, Joshua Caswell, and two sailors to go fishing. The three never came back. When enough time had passed that it was cause for concern, Gray sent out a vessel to search for the missing crew members. All three were found dead, stripped naked and full of stab wounds. Abhorred by this brutal killing, Gray took the Columbia south. There is a plausible explanation for what happened. Captain Samuel Crowell 
an American sailor who captained the Hancock, had recently built a ship near where Gray was located. While launching the ship, he got into a battle with the local Native Americans. It is likely that Gray's second mate, Caswell, was believed to be a part of Samuel Crowell's crew. As the trading season was winding down, Gray met with the two ships, Hope and Hancock. Ingraham and Crowell told Gray that they planned to sail to China to sell their furs. Gray said that he planned to winter in the Northwest. He elected to return to Clackwatt Sound in order to avoid any issues with Spain. An interesting choice since Gray had hardly endeared himself to Chief Wiccanish when he took his brother hostage. Gray set up a fort which he named Fort Defiance at Adventure Cove. His plan was to use the fort as winter quarters while he repaired the Columbia and built his new sloop. Wiccanish visited the Columbia crew often and took great interest in what the Americans were doing. He watched them build the ship and their fort. He was not unwelcoming to the Americans, but definitely kept a close eye on them. Winter rolled by and the sloop was nearing completion. It was in February of 1791 that the Lady Washington and Captain John Kendrick came sailing into Clackwatt Sound. Salutes from Fort Defiance and the Lady Washington greeted one another. Captain Kendrick, now 52 years old, met with his former second-in-command, Robert Gray. Despite their differences, the two greeted each other warmly. Distance makes the heart grow fonder, as they always say. Over meals and drinks, Kendrick recounted what he had been up to the last couple years. Kendrick had been in China around the same time as Robert Gray, but Gray had elected to speed away to Boston rather than be under the direct command of Kendrick. Kendrick, like Gray, had been picked clean in China. Rather than sailing home empty-handed, he had talked someone into giving him a $3,000 loan for the sale of his ship. The deal was that he would get the money, return to the northwest coast to trade, and then come back to China to sell the furs and give the ship to its new owner. With that money, he converted Lady Washington to a brigantine and resupplied to make another run at fur trading. Kendrick returned to the northwest coast and headed for the Queen Charlotte Islands. He went there to trade with the Haida people who he had traded with previously. You may recall Gray had met with these same people and traded quite successfully without any incident. Gray's success was largely due to the fact that he tolerated petty theft during his time there. Kendrick had a much different approach. In 1790, Chief Koya, whose name meant Raven, was aboard Kendrick's vessel trading with the Americans. Kendrick had been increasingly frustrated with thefts and decided to take his frustration out on the powerful leader. Kendrick had Koya seized and locked him into a gunport. Kendrick demanded that the price of items stolen be paid back in furs. Koya, who had little choice, acquiesced to Kendrick's demands. Kendrick left, but Koya's reputation and pride was greatly damaged during that altercation. The following trading season, in 1791, Kendrick returned to Koya's people as if the altercation had never taken place. The captain unwisely welcomed Koya and 50 Haida people on board the vessel to trade. Kendrick and all of his sailors were unarmed at the moment. Kendrick's gunnery chief grew suspicious of Koya's intent and wanted to open the arms chest so that the sailors could have weapons ready. Kendrick stopped his gunnery chief and the two got into an argument. Chief Koya, who saw an opportunity, and grabbed the keys to the arms chest. His people pushed the Americans away from the arms chest so that they could not retrieve their weapons. 
Kendrick ordered his crew below decks to find anything they could to fight off the Haida. He tried to stall, but Koya came at him with a knife. Kendrick tried to fight him off, but Koya was able to slash Kendrick across the stomach with his blade. The sailors managed to retrieve a few of the arms from below deck and they came up and fired shots at the Haida warriors. The Haida began to retreat and Kendrick's men were able to recover the arms chest. At that point, they fired at will until the decks were completely clear. The Haida had no choice but to retreat off of the ship and back to their shores. Koya survived, but about 40 Haida warriors were killed during the battle. Kendrick did not lose a single man, and the cut on his stomach was not serious. Koya's motivation for the battle was twofold. His humiliation at the hands of Kendrick last time had severely damaged his reputation amongst his people. He had lost honor and prestige and fallen from his station. He had hoped that by taking Kendrick's ship, he would regain his honor and exact revenge on the American. Kendrick departed the Queen Charlotte Islands and went to Nootka Sound. At the entrance, he spotted a Spanish fort. He was called to stop, but he pretended not to understand what they were saying and proceeded towards Marvina's Bay. Spain sent a ship to track Kendrick, and when they found him, told him that they could have sunk him for not heeding their signal. Kendrick, sticking to his usual playbook, said that he was only in the area because he needed to repair his vessel. Spain decided to help tow his vessel all the way into Marvina's Bay. Kendrick took some time to relax and engage in a little bit of land speculation. Chief McQuinna welcomed Kendrick back into the bay and was fine with him anchoring there for a time. Kendrick decided that he would purchase some land in Nootka Sound in hopes that it would be incredibly valuable in the future. He bought a few tracts of land but guaranteed that McQuinna's people could fish and hunt at will. These purchases were made on Joseph Burrell's dime, but in Kendrick's name only. Kendrick's father and grandfather had made a killing in land speculation, as many earlier settlers did. His hope was that these land purchases would net him or his descendants very well. After these land purchases was when Kendrick met back up with Robert Gray at Clackwatt Sound. After recounting his tales, it was time for Kendrick to decide what he would do with the furs he had purchased. He considered giving his furs to the Columbia and then returning to Boston to reconcile his accounts. John Hoskins did not think that would be an appropriate idea. Hoskins was, however, quite happy to meet up with Kendrick once more. The young man had met Kendrick at Joseph Burrell's headquarters in Boston back when the first voyage was organized. The young clerk, like many others, took a liking to Kendrick. Let's not forget that a lot of people found Kendrick to be extremely charming and likable. Hoskins saw Kendrick as this wonderful man whose expedition would have gone great if Robert Gray hadn't struck out on his own. Ironic that Kendrick's fumbling leadership resulted in a host of issues and he undoubtedly played more fast and loose with Burrell's money than Gray ever did. Yet, Hoskins still much preferred Kendrick over Robert Gray. Kendrick eventually decided he would return to Macau to attempt to sell his furs once more, leaving Gray at Fort Deviance at Adventure Cove. All seemed well for a time, but soon it seemed that Chief Wickenish planned to do more than just watch the Americans work on their fort and ship. One day, Gray and his third mate John Boyt were out hunting. Boyt was alone near the shore when a canoe full of Clackwatt people with strung bows demanded Boyt's weapon and cartridge box. Boyt, 
bravely and perhaps a little foolhardily, put his foot on top of the cartridge box, aimed his weapon at the canoe, and told them if they tried to get it, he would shoot. The Clackwatt told Boyd they wanted to know where Gray was. Boyd lied and sent them in the opposite direction of his captain. Once they left, Boyd hurried to tell Gray what happened and they returned to Fort Defiance. Gray suspected that the Clackwatt people who questioned Boyd were working for Tutus Cassettle, who Gray had taken hostage the previous year. This would soon be confirmed by the following event. Back at Fort Defiance, the Clackwatt were once again observing the Americans and mingling. Gray noticed Atu having a prolonged conversation with some of the Clackwatt people, and he appeared to be under duress. Gray questioned Atu about his conversation until Atu confessed that the Clackwatt had asked him to sabotage the guns on the fort. In return, they would welcome him and give him a prominent spot in their society. When Gray learned about the plot from Atu, he doubled the efforts on completing the sloop and repairing the Columbia. Gray also put his men on high alert for any attack. That night, patrols were stationed at Fort Defiance, and as Atu had said would happen, Clackwatt warriors amassed nearby. The men of the expedition recall that the Clackwatt began their war cries, which were described as whoops and screams. They were terrified, but in the dim light of the fort, Gray's men stood with arms ready for a fight. The fight never came, and the Clackwatt retreated. It is possible they realized that their double agent Atu had decided not to sabotage the fort, but instead alerted the Americans to their presence. The following day, Chief Wiccanish and his brother Tudiscusettle came to the fort with furs to trade. Gray, who believed that the two had been plotting to kill him, was having none of it. He seized all the furs the two had brought and told them if they wanted pay, they should seek it from their tribesmen who had tried to attack them last night. This was serious business. Gray was under the impression that he now had an enemy and a powerful one to boot. He knew that if the Clackwatt wanted to, they could overrun him easily. Gray sealed his position with his heavy-handed treatment of Wiccanish and his brother. He worked his crew to finish the new ship as fast as possible. They worked from sunup to sundown, and they even worked at night sometimes by torchlight. In short order, the new vessel was born, and it was christened the Adventure. Adventure was captained by Robert Haswell, and before departing, Gray ordered that Fort Defiance be completely torn down and stripped of anything useful. Then he set sail for the village of Opitsat, the home of Chief Wiccanish. Opitsat was one of the largest and most elaborate Native American settlements in North America. When Gray arrived, he found it abandoned. Either it was fled from, or the Clackwatt had moved to one of their other permanent settlements. Evidence suggests the Clackwatt fled, as there were utensils dropped haphazardly and other signs that people left in a rush. In an act of vengeance for the suspected attack on Fort Defiance, Gray ordered that the settlement be destroyed. The cannons of the Columbia shredded through the ornately carved buildings. Cedar longhouses, whose entryways were carved to look like the mouths of great animals of the Northwest, were destroyed in a barrage of cannon fire. After getting his revenge, Robert Gray left to begin a new trade season. Next time, we will follow Gray as he becomes the first navigator to successfully enter the Columbia River, an incredible feat that many tried to do but failed. As always, thank you for listening, and I will see you next time.